So glad you did that. Thank you. We're going to be going to John 9, but first I just want you to know that uh, we've been raising money for the Uganda mission team. We have raised over $15,000, so more than enough has come in for the wells. so that's very exciting. If you want to keep giving to help uh, expenses with people who are going, that would be great. Also, today is Lynn's 60th birthday. Lynn, stand up, Lynn. Just give her a big hand. She made it to 60. Way to go, Lenny. Okay. Let's see, where am I at? Oh, uh, let me just say, today, uh, we, we are going to go to John 9, but I want to remind us of our theme scripture, Acts 4.13, which says, Now when they saw the boldness of Jesus and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized, what did they realize? They had been with Jesus. And that's our theme for this year, being with Jesus. And I just want you to know that being with Jesus changed their lives so much that they believed they could do the same things that Jesus did. And so every day with Jesus was amazing. Uh, They never knew uh, what he would do or what he would talk about or who he would talk to. And miracles after miracles took place. So being with Jesus changed them for the rest of their lives. Now today I want to talk to you about God's biggest question. I want you to, or I should say, God's biggest problem. God doesn't have any questions, but we do, all right? And uh, one of my questions is, why do women love cats? It's just a question of, I, 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 I don't really like cats, but I wonder why women especially love cats. I mean, cats are independent. They don't listen. They don't come in when you call. They don't like to, they they like to stay out all night. They come home and expect to be fed and stroked. Then they want to be left alone and want to sleep. In other words, every quality that women dislike in a man, they love in a cat. (laughs) That's just one of my questions, all right? Well, we need to, uh, uh, we need to just serve Jesus and we need Jesus right now, don't we? So, all right, let's lift up our Bibles, smartphones, iPads, whatever else we have your Bible on, and let's make our prayer declaration together. Say this with me. This is my Bible, God's holy word. This book is alive and it's powerful. I read other books, but this is the only book that reads me. There are many opinions, but this is the only opinion that counts. Today, I declare by faith, I can do all it says I can do, I can be all it says I can be, and I can have all it says I can have. Today, I ask the Lord Jesus, the living word, to take his written word and personalize it for my life so I can leave here changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, I have found as a pastor uh, adults have more serious questions than I just gave you. And as a, as a pastor, I found there are two major questions that people like to ask or would like to ask. So on your notes, here's the f- two big questions people ask. Number one, why am I here? People want to know uh, if, if they are just an accident 
or is there a design and a purpose for them being here? And hopefully we'll get to that question before the year is over. But today, the next question is what I want to talk about. How can a loving God allow pain and suffering? People want to know why difficulties, hard things, unfair things, which they seem, seem to be unfair to them, happen to their lives and to people they are close to. So people want to know why God allows evil to exist. Why doesn't he just stop it? Well, Jesus uh, gave us an observation about life on this earth when he says, it's not on your notes, I don't think, but Matthew 5.45, maybe it is on your notes. He, he says this, he makes the sun to rise and fall on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That simply means good and bad, good, uh, good things and bad things, good and evil, happen to the righteous and to the unrighteous alike. Now, I say all that to set up a situation where Jesus and the disciples come up on a blind man who was born blind. So John 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So Jesus notices this man as he's leaving in John 8, if you read it, you'll find that he's in the temple, and he's just declared to the Jewish leaders that he's God. He, he tells them, I am, and I am is a name that, from the Old Testament that basically is telling everybody, I am is God. I am can do everything. So they try to pick up stones to kill him, and, uh, but he slips through the crowd. Jesus could be a little slippery now and then. And he comes upon this blind man, and so Jesus notices this blind man, and the blind man didn't notice him. How come? He was blind. Now, I make that a point because what happens here physically is what happens to us spiritually. Jesus comes by our lives, and as he comes by, he takes notice of you and me. He seeks after us, and he finds us, and he opens our eyes from spiritual blindness. And maybe that is why you're here today. He, he is walking by your life and notices you. You may think you got here by accident, somebody drug you here, but maybe, just maybe, today you're here because Jesus brought you here and noticed you, all right? So Jesus notices this man is blind, and the disciples decide this is a good time to talk to Jesus about the question of sin and suffering and pain and who's to blame for it. So the disciples make this man uh, with blindness a point of discussion rather than an object of compassion. We're so used to doing that. The homeless on the street, they have moved in next to a church. We drive by in our, in our cars and we say, that church ought to do something about that. Boy, you guys are all looking serious now. <clears throat> it's true. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm guilty of it. I've walked by, driven by a church downtown here where the homeless have been and wondering why that church isn't doing anything. But there comes a point when we must ask ourselves, 
What am I doing to help alleviate suffering? Now, granted, some people don't want help. They want to stay in that lifestyle. They want their drugs and and their alcohol, and they just want to be left alone. But that's not always the case, and we shouldn't assume that is the case. So back to the question the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? These guys were taught and believed, and you can write this down, in the issue of theosity, that's what it is, which is the study of good and evil in the realm of theology. So Jewish theology and Greek philosophy taught that when bad things happen to people, it was because of a direct cause and effect uh, of a relationship between the choices they've made and the consequences of those choices. So this theology taught, if you're suffering greatly, there must be great sin in your life. This is what the book of Job is all about. If you've read the book of Job, he has three buddies that come to help him discover all the sins that he's committed, and that's why this great suffering is going on in his life. And if you've read the story, we know that's not true. Job was actually in the middle of a controversy between God and Satan and had no idea he was battling spiritual warfare. In other words, suffering and pain can come into your life and you might be in the middle of a spiritual war between heaven and hell and you don't even know uh, that you're in the middle of this struggle because you are the object to see uh, if, if you might fall or not. In many cases, there's no greater roadblock for people believing in God. Uh, they say, I, I can't believe in God because dealing with the problem of bad things happening to good people and bad people prospering. I don't get it. In fact, I was reading an article about one lady who said, I'm so fed up with trying to figure out God, I've decided to not believe there is a God. Well, I think a lot of people come to that kind of uh, conclusion. But this question bothered King David so much that he almost gave up his faith. In Psalm 73, he says, basically, I know that God is good, and I know that he's good to Israel, and I know he's especially good to those who call on him with a pure heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. And then he says this in verses 3 through 5. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Ever had a problem with that? People who are bad seem to have lots more than you do. And they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. And this is why some of us ask questions like, why does this always happen to me and not anyone else? Which is not true, but it feels that way. And there's also another issue they believed, and that is the issue of prenatal sin. Now, their leaders taught this theology, and also Greek philosophy kind of taught this as well. They taught that when you're in the womb, that there's a possibility that you can actually sin, and that's why this man could have been blind. So they asked this question. 
And I just happened to bring something to kind of give you a visual. Who sinned more? We'll leave it like that. And who has more sin? Can you see those two little ones in there? And this one. We tend to think, well, somebody had to have sinned. Was it his parents or was it him? And they actually believed that they, they taught this, and I don't know how they did it. To me, it's insane. But they taught that a baby could sin before it was born. And they kind of get this. I don't have time to go into all of it, but they get it from the idea in Genesis where Cain and Abel... Cain sinned, and it said, sin is crouching at the door, and so they believed that, and and it's it's desires for you, they believed at the door was the birth canal, so there was a possibility that a baby could sin before it was born. So, whatever defect that baby could have was due to their sin before he or she was born. Now, how many know that's crazy? It's not biblical, by the way, all right? So who sinned, him or his parents? How many know his his parents probably had more sin? He just had a little bit when he was born. No, we're all born in sin. We don't have to sin. You're born in sin. So what we do is we judge people by this standard all the time. We think that people who sin more than us deserve what they get. And we will say this. Well, they deserve it. We'll say things like this. They did me wrong. They, 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 they have worse sin than I do. So, get them good, God. Get them good. We think because our jar has less sin then we deserve God's blessing more than others. All right, moving on, verse three. Jesus answered. He gives the answer now. Neither this man nor this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, it's not that he is sinless, it's just that his sin nor his parents sin didn't cause this, but rather, he's a miracle waiting to happen. It's for God's glory. He's going to be healed. So he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then he goes on in verse four and five. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am the world, in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this man, according to some commentaries, this man could be up to 30 years old. He lives on his own. His parents are around, but he is a beggar at the gates, and he's born with a congenital anomaly, which brings up another issue. Do you think suffering can be used by God to bring out a greater good in your life? See, we always say the worst thing that could happen is some disease could happen or COVID could happen. No one likes pain and suffering. But do you think that God could use it to bring something really good out of your life? 
I think so. All right, let me give you a couple benefits of pain. Number one, it can equip you. So how can pain and suffering equip us? Well, pain and suffering equips us to minister to those who are suffering. Do you know how to get credentials to help those who go through pain and suffering? (laughs) That's it. Go through pain and suffering. You go through loneliness. Go through a loss or, or sickness yourself. And that's why Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. So God allows us to go through some suffering and pain. Then he comes and comforts us. And through that comfort and our troubles, we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. So when we go through these tough times, you can count on God being there to comfort you. Now, another way pain benefits us, and this is a small list, by the way, but it can strengthen us. And uh, James said this in James 1, 2, and 3, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many do that? I don't do that. I don't go, oh, yay, I'm so excited. A trial has come my way. I I just don't do that. I'm not excited for suffering. I'm not excited for pain. Uh, But uh, James tells us that at some point, we ought to count it all joy when we go through various trials. I just want you to know, I count it all joy when I get to the other side. And then I look back. I, I usually do that when I'm on the other side, like I said, and then I can count it all joy. Then verse three says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance. So it strengthens us. Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. He must have walked with a limp or something like that. And and it, and it tells us here in 2 Corinthians that he begged God to take it away. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And what he's saying here is people who can read the word of God, people who get revelations from God, it's possible to become proud because of your knowledge and what you have. But he said uh, to keep him from getting proud, a thorn was given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. I want you guys to take heart today because if you're going through a tough time, it doesn't mean God can't hear you. I mean, and if he doesn't answer you in, his, in your timing, God has a greater plan, all right? So three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then it goes on. For the sake of Christ, that I am content with weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that's worth an applause right there, you guys. I'm telling you, in your weakness, God is made strong. You're not getting the glory he is. Now, I can think of another benefit. It's not on your notes. You might want to write this down. It can bring correction. In my day, my parents used spanking as a way to correct us. They would be in prison today if they were alive. And the discipline they inflicted upon uh, Pinky and I at a young age, it worked. Pinky and I are the great men of God we are today (laughs) because of the infliction of our father. Our mother tried, but it didn't work. But she always had this phrase, just wait till your dad gets home. (laughs) Giving your kids an iPad and putting them in a timeout to watch a movie or play a game is not correction. It's it's correction. It's it's rewarding them for bad behavior. I just had to get that out. That's all. Okay. King David said this in Psalm 119.63, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I'm not, I'm not advocating that you spank in a wrong way, but I am advocating pain can help you get on the right path. All right. And C.S. Lewis said it this way. Pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Let me say that again. Pain plants the flag of truth and the fortress of a rebel soul. So pain can correct us, and the pain and hardships in my life got my attention, corrected my steps, brought correction to my life. The pain and suffering made me better, even though at the time, I tended to complain a little bit. At the time, uh, I did not feel like uh, God was in my corner. And I've discovered nothing's, nothing happens to me, it happens for me. Now, let me say it this way. Nothing happens to you, it happens for you. Because Romans 8.28 tells us all things work together for the good of those uh, who love God and are called according to his purpose. So don't go around saying, I can't believe this happened to me. No, it happened for you. And I've learned that behind the pain and the circumstances is a God that is in control and I can trust him. Okay, verse four goes on to say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is saying this, we've had a nice discussion here, boys, but we have some work to do. And you can write this down. Jesus is urgent about our works. The words, while it is day, equals your life. We don't know how long uh, that day is going to be, but eventually our day will end, nighttime will come, but uh, we have opportunities while it is day to do good for God. We won't be doing good works to help people, to heal people, comfort people, to counsel people, and to evangelize people in heaven. We have time to do it here now. So the people up there won't need your comfort. The people down here need it now. So God gives every one of us opportunities to do good 
right here and right now to make it a difference with our lives. So it's urgent to use our time wisely when we have it. The second thing we see is this. Jesus is personal about this. Look at verse six. When he had said these things, so he's telling the disciples, guys, uh, nobody sinned that caused this. I'm gonna do the glory of God. Then he spits, look what he said. He, he spits on the ground and made clay with saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of yucky. But the blind man couldn't see it. This is one time you might, you might be glad you're blind. So, and by the way, it took a lot of saliva to make that much clay to put on both those eyelids. A sizable amount, by the way. So I'm sure the disciples were blown away at what is he doing now? I mean, I, I, I'm sure they are thinking, what are you thinking, Jesus? I've never seen you do this one. Yet usually, you know, you, you say it or you touch him. Why, why did he do it this way? Truth is, I have no idea. I, I've tried theologically to figure this out, but I want you to know, I couldn't. Now, there are several theories, uh, but I want you to know, as for me, as I think back to Genesis, when God formed man out of the dust of the ground, I think it's there because when, he started, when we started this series, John 1 tells us nothing that has been made was made, it was all made by Jesus. So I believe, this is just my thoughts, that he made eyeballs right there on the spot. And so this Jesus, the creator, is recreating eyeballs for this man. So he spits on the ground. This is my opinion. There's no commentary that'll back this up, by the way. He spits on the ground, puts the mud on his eyes, and then verse seven, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came, washed and came back seeing. So Jesus is personal with this man. He made clay for the man. And uh, I, have people, I have people all the time say this, we need to get back to the works of Jesus. We need to meet to do the miracles that Jesus did. I just want you to know, I've never seen a healing ministry try this one. Come to the spitting healer. No, never, never seen it. It just does, it wouldn't probably grow very well. So you've never seen anybody do that. I just thought I'd get that thought out there because Jesus didn't do it the same way every time. All right, now you can write down this. He touched the man. Jesus made it so personal and I want us to not miss the fact that Jesus touched people. Here's a quote I read the other day. It goes like this. Jesus' mission was not primarily a crusade against disease, but a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted those people one by one to feel his love. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. And I, I love the fact that you love involves touching. So when we pray for others, we put a hand on people's shoulders. When we, when we uh, extend our hand, we are embracing someone and showing them that we care. Sometimes we embrace with a hug. And human touch means so much. And human touch, physical touch, is healing. Jesus made it personal. 
and he made the clay and he placed it on the eyelids. He was showing him his love, his compassion, and his healing. Jesus made it so personal that he changed this man for the rest of his life. So here's a couple of questions to ask ourselves. Are you willing to embrace suffering if it drives you to God? I have found my suffering from physical to emotional uh, issues have driven me to God in prayer and in worship and not away from him. But some people get mad and blame God. Don't you think God gets a bad rap for a lot of the things that go on? We forget there's a devil in this world. We forget that fallen man is what caused this whole mess. But we want to blame God. All right, here's another question. Are you willing to alleviate someone else's suffering if it will drive them to God? And there are so many ways to do that, but you need to be led by the Holy Spirit. So this man is driven to his Savior. Verse 8. Therefore the neighbors, aren't you glad for neighbors? And those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. And he said, I am he. (laughs) I love this. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? The question is repeated. You need to know this. It's repeated four times in this text. How were you healed? Well, the recipe was a a little spit, a little dirt, place it on my eyeballs, and voila, I have new eyes. This is the wrong question, by the way. It's not how, but who. And if you find the who, you will discover the how because it is different for each individual. Verses 11 and 12. He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. See, God's biggest problem is for people to believe who he says he is. That's God's biggest problem. We see miracles, and we don't see miracles, and we can't figure out why some get it and some don't, so we try to figure out God and try to put him in our little box and decide if there is a God or there isn't a God. These folks are so confused by what has happened to this man that they're willing to believe, in this case, that it's a mistaken identity. Rather than believe this man has been healed from his blindness. Now, I want you to hear this. It's not on your notes, but you need to know this. Unbelief is God's greatest problem. Truth is, is also man's greatest problem. There's nothing wrong with questions. But if your questions are not answered to your satisfaction, they can lead to complaining, criticism, keeping your rules that you've made for God and for others and being, not being met by God, and it can lead to, to bitterness. By the way, all those things I just mentioned are the language of unbelief. If you find yourself being critical, bitter, griping, complaining, and especially against God, I want you to know this. Unbelief limits the power of God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus, uh, what Jesus did then, he can do now. Now, this is not on your notes, I don't think, but Psalm 78, verse 41, says this, and I'm paraphrasing. They... 
they limited the Holy One by their unbelief. They limited the Holy One by, the, by their unbelief. How do you limit a limitless God? By unbelief. Remember, he couldn't do many miracles in Nazareth because they didn't believe, so he was, his power was limited. We must never limit our great God. He can do anything, including what he does in this chapter. So here's what these great neighbors did for him. Well, I don't know if you really are the guy or not, but I'm taking to the Pharisees. That's like taking him to the judges. They brought him, so verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, and that was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Jesus seems to do a lot of miracles, by the way, on the Sabbath. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus did a miracle on the Sabbath. Now, I've been blamed for being a button pusher here and there, but I think Jesus was a button pusher. He always stirred up these leaders. It's like he looked at his time clock, his, his, his sundial, and, and said, huh, it's the Sabbath. I think I'll do a miracle today. It's like he loved pushing their buttons and, and, and ruffling their feathers. So these Pharisees had made up a book of the law. You, you might, it's called the Mishnah. And uh, there was an entire dissertation on what you could do and not do on the Sabbath day in this little book. And in the Mishnah, get this, it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath. And it was forbidden to set a bone on the Sabbath unless it was life-threatening. Aren't they so merciful and kind? But here's an interesting one. This is literally in the Mishnah. It was lawful to spit on the Sabbath but if your spittle rolled in the ground and now you, you broke the law because you have created a furrow in the ground and that is ag- the agricultural process in order to plant something. How many know people can get really weird? Legalistic. Let's make a law. I think our politicians are great at this. No, I'm just leaving it at that. All right, let's stop right there. <laughs> So what kind of people don't rejoice when a man, blind man gets healed? Here's the answer. People who prefer policies over people. That's the bottom line. So to Jesus, the people were more important than policies. So this guy gets to the Pharisees, verse 15, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I watched, and I, now I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe unbelief concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. 
he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They were afraid of being unsynagogued, okay? <laughs> Crazy. Verse four, 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory, for they know that we know that this man is a sinner. Now, that, just that statement alone blows me away. A group of sinful, religious, arrogant, pompous, unrighteous men calling the sinless, perfect God a sinner. But I love the answer of this man who received the miracle of physical sight. Look at what he says, verse 25. Then he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's saying, I don't know all about this stuff. I don't know about all your rules, but I know this. I was once blind, but now I see. I was blind, but not anymore. You can't take away a person's personal testimony. Your testimony is the most powerful weapon on your, in your life. We're still singing, and we're going to sing this in a minute. John Newton's testimony, which was written in 1772, exactly 250 years ago, and we're still singing it. It's called Amazing Grace. This is where the words to that song came from, this text right here. A man named John Newton, who was a slave trader for the British colonies, he assisted in his life with other traders to bring thousands of slaves from Africa and Jamaica. And, and he took them to other colonies and sold them. Over a period of, I don't know how many years, 11 million slaves were brought from Africa and Jamaica and other places like that to the colonies. And the British Empire became great off the slave trade. So he brought these men, women and children to help build the British Empire. But on the voyages, I want you to hear this, where there, there were maybe 600 slaves on one ship who were chained in a four by 18, four foot by 18 inch cell for sometimes up to three weeks, 400 of them would die. And John Newton was haunted by his cruelty and the lives he had lost on the way and the way he treated those people. This man was spiritually blind, but Jesus found him and restored him. We watched the movie yesterday. I would recommend this to anybody. It's called Amazing Grace. John Newton was once asked, did you find God? And he answered, no, I think he found me. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He also said this, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Come on. Your testimony can change people's lives because it is about how Jesus opened your eyes and gave you spiritual sight. Verses 26 to 33, and then we'll be done. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, 
I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also, this was a mistake. Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. This guy has some amazing theology for being blind. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And you can check this out. There's no place in the Old Testament where this ever happened. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they answered to him, answered and said to him, you were completely born in this in sins and you are teaching us and they cast him out. He was unsynagogued. They unfounded him. Then there's verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they cast him out, that they had unsynagogued him and unfounded him. And when he had found him, Aren't you glad God never quits? Look at He said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Let's stand. I want us to end this service today by remembering the grace that's come to every one of our lives. And it's so easy for unbelief to creep into our hearts and our minds and our souls. But today, God wants you to remember <clears throat> he was looking for you. <clears throat> He's a great God that serves you. His sight was restored physically and spiritually. Let me ask this last question. Which one was greater? See, God's biggest problem is really our biggest problem. Will you believe or will you live a life of unbelief? It's up to you. Let's take a moment and just sing Amazing Grace.
walk into this place by accident today. Just like the blind man, it says, and Jesus passed by. And they got in the big sin discussion. I just know this. I was almost five years old when Jesus passed by my life. And I knew then I was a sinner. And my brother, I knew he was for sure a sinner. And together, we walked down the aisle to give our lives to Jesus. And I'm saying today, you're not here by accident. Jesus is passing by your life. And he's saying to you, you need to come to know Jesus today. It doesn't matter if you have this much sin or this little amount of sin. But it matters if you believe in Jesus Christ. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in just a moment. If you need Jesus today, you're not here by accident. You're here on purpose. If you need him, raise your hand right now and say, that's me. I need Jesus as my Savior. Raise him high so I can see him. Thank you. I see that hand. see that hand. Three, four, any more? Five. Thank you. I love five. Five is the number of grace. Come on. Say this prayer with me, everybody. Believe in your heart and confess it with your mouth. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to die in my place. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of all my sins, all my mistakes, and all my failures. Come into my life and be my Savior, my Lord, my boss, my friend, and my king. And by your grace and by your power, I will serve you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Come on. All right. Prayer workers, if you could come up, if you gave your life to Jesus today, tell somebody, get some prayer. But let's close singing this song, the one that I, not, not the next two verses, but Let's just sing, praise God, praise God. blindness. Thank you, Lord, that you opened our eyes to see the Savior. Thank you for eternal life. I pray today that each one will leave here spreading your grace wherever they go so they can tell others in whatever condition they're in. We won't judge them, but we might be able to help them come closer to Christ because of our compassion and our concern just like you. Bless each one and use them for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.